Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I live in San Clemente, so I didn't have to make a very far trek. Um, but uh, it's my privilege to be able to worship with lots of different churches and representatives of the body of Christ in Orange County, in California, and the country um, as I travel and share some of these really important ideas and conversations. And so I just wanted to thank uh, Jared and the pastoral staff here for um, hosting me and giving me some time to share what I believe is uh, something that's very close to the heart of God. And it goes without saying that many churches in our country today who call in the name of Christ have never preached a full-length topical sermon on the issue of abortion from the pulpit for various reasons of fear, for various reasons of it being perceived as political or offending people. And so I just want you to be extremely grateful and thankful for the type of leadership you have here in Pastor Jared and the rest of the people who care for shepherding your souls and addressing issues that are close to the heart of God. And so it's my pleasure to be able to join you in that conversation. Uh, Jared asked me to say that, by the way. No, I'm just kidding. He didn't ask me to, but I would have either way because it's true and, and it is truly encouraging and I'm glad to be here with you. I just want to acknowledge as we start to address this issue, something that is fairly obvious and that is that I'm not going to assume that everyone in this room this morning holds my exact position. You may not describe yourself as quote unquote pro-life. Maybe you identify as pro-choice. Maybe you identify as personally pro-life. So you don't like the idea of it personally, but maybe you're not convinced it's something we should make illegal. Maybe you're on the fence. Maybe you've never come to an objective position or decision on the issue, and you can kind of be swayed by arguments on both sides of the issue. And so regardless of where you find yourself on this issue this morning, I just want to encourage you to trust in your pastors, trust in the Lord to speak to you. And I would even ask you to, to ask Jesus if there's something he wants to teach you and communicate to you this morning. Not because I'm here and I have this just amazing intellect and something I want to share with you, but just in complete humility, position yourself and ask God, is there something you want to teach me this morning through Seth? And pray that with humility and ask him if he would do that. And I think you'd be surprised with what he'd communicate. So let's engage this with an open mind and with tolerance, regardless of where we find ourselves politically, socially, or morally on this issue. So I have a friend by the name of Dr. Mike Adams. He's a professor at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and he speaks fairly regularly on abortion, issues of free speech, issues of religious freedom. He's frequently engaging in lawsuits against people who want to threaten Christians' freedom to speak publicly on issues that align with their Christian worldview. And a few months ago, earlier this year, he participated in a pretty popular and massively viewed debate on the issue of abortion. He debated an abortionist by the name of Dr. Willie Parker. Now, Dr. Willie Parker describes himself as a Christian abortionist. And Dr. Willie Parker shares that he actually used to be opposed to abortion. So he actually used to describe himself as pro-life. But he says that after he read the parable of the Good Samaritan, he decided to pursue a career as an abortionist. And in 2015, he wrote a New York Times opinion editorial entitled, Why I Provide Abortions. And this is a segment of his article. 
The Samaritan reversed the question of concern to care more about the well-being of the person needing help than about what might happen to him for stopping to give help. I realized that if I were to show compassion, I would have to act on behalf of those women. My concern about women who lacked access to abortion became more important to me than worrying about what might happen to me for providing those services. So you see, Dr. Willie Parker believes that abortionists are just like good Samaritans because they show compassion to women facing unplanned and unwanted pregnancies. So friends, in response to this type of spiritual confusion and this type of spiritual darkness, we as followers of Jesus need to discover what true compassion is, what real truth is, how to engage the issue of abortion with grace and with truth, with love and with light. And we need Jesus to show us what real compassion looks like. So I'm going to be preaching a little bit from 1 John because I think the disciple John is going to help disciple us with some helpful words from the mouth of God in how we engage this issue. So in 1 John 5, 2 through 3, John tells us this, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So if we want to talk about this issue more broadly, we need to start with where God starts. We need to start with what God says. And God says that the love of God is to keep his commandments. So what are God's commandments? Well, to answer those questions, to answer what God's greatest commandments are, which was interesting, the reading of scripture just a few minutes ago alluded to the two greatest commandments. But to answer what God's commandments are, I'm actually going to go to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And rather than finding some spiritual justification to become an abortionist, I think we're going to find something very different. And it's going to help us answer this question, what are God's commandments? And it's going to really remind us that none of us can keep God's commandments perfectly. So I'm going to read the first portion of the parable of the Good Samaritan, and we should have it up on the screen for you to read along as well. So Luke 10, 25 through 29. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, putting Jesus to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, that's a big question. It's a question we should all be asking. He said to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So in response to the question, what must I do to get salvation? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And in response to the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan. This is the parable he uses to answer those two massive questions. 
And you know the parable, but I'll briefly summarize it for us, right? So a man's traveling on the road. He's traveling to Jericho. And scripture says that he gets beaten. He gets mugged. He gets robbed. He gets left for dead. The parable of the Good Samaritan actually says that these robbers leave him on the side of the road half dead. So here's a bleeding victim, bleeding out on the side of the road who needs help. And to the apparent luck of the bleeding victim, two religious men walk by. A Levite and a priest. Religious leaders. Religious leaders who know the law of God, apparently. Who would have answered just like the lawyer answered correctly. I know the law. I know the law of God. The love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The love your neighbor as yourself. But when these religious leaders turn the corner and they see this bleeding victim, the parable of the Good Samaritan says that they walk by on the other side of the road. They go out of their way to avoid the bleeding victim, the man who needs help. So maybe they felt compassion. They knew the law of God, but they didn't show compassion. They didn't have compassion. It was the good Samaritan, the bleeding victim's natural enemy, because remember, Jews and Samaritans hated one another. So culturally, this, this was a guy that he was supposed to hate. And it says when he saw him, what? He had compassion. He showed compassion. So the good Samaritan went to this man and, and he, he poured oil and wine on his wounds and he, he put bandages on his wounds and then he put the man on his own donkey so he had to walk and he took him to the nearest inn and he began nursing the man back to health. Then he told the innkeeper, I have to go now. When I come back, I'm going to pay you for any other costs that accumulated in caring for this man while I was gone. Radical sacrifices of his time, his energy, and his money to love his neighbor lavishly, to love his neighbor sacrificially, to love a bleeding victim. A victim who culture told him was his enemy, something, someone that he was supposed to hate. So here's where we're going to start. We're going to look for ourselves in this parable. Because, friends, we're not the Good Samaritan. We're not those who love bleeding victims perfectly. So when the lawyer asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor, is he interested in really getting the proper definition of neighbor? Is he really interested in making sure, well, Jesus, I don't want to leave anyone out of the definition of neighbor. Because I'm just so perfectly loving that I want to make sure I understand who all neighbors are in order that I don't leave anyone out of the term neighbor. Is that why he's asking, and who is my neighbor? No. And who is my neighbor? What a horrible question to ask. He's asking that question to define certain people as neighbors and certain people as non-neighbors. He asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he wants to know how he can get to heaven and still hate certain people. Still shirk responsibility from loving certain people that it's inconvenient to love. I see you, but I don't see you. I walk by on the other side of the road. But Jesus switches the question in the parable of the Good Samaritan from who is my neighbor to am I a good neighbor? That's why the Good Samaritan's example is so perfect. Nobody can love like that. And friend, the, answers, the answer to the question, am I a good neighbor, should humble us all. 
Because the standard of love that Jesus lays out in the Good Samaritan is impossible to achieve. None of us love like that. And apart from Christ on our own, Christ's commandments actually become burdensome. Because none of us can obey the law of God perfectly. None of us can love others the way that the law of God commands. And we know the standard of love that God commands, don't we? In Matthew 5, 43, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? You've heard this. This is what everyone thinks. This is how everyone lives. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, we all love quoting those verses, don't we? But who lives like this? The guy who ticks you off at Trader Joe's. The family member that you don't want to invite over for dinner. Who loves like this? Who prays for enemies and loves enemies? Most of us, myself included, when we see an enemy hurting, falling down, we're kind of like, heck yeah, it's about time. Justice. Nobody loves like this. Jesus says again in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Okay, yeah, we'd like to love. Uh, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Jesus, seriously? Because how did Christ love us? Perfectly. Blood, shed, death. To the uttermost. Wrath of God taken on our behalf. And then he says, you are to love others as I have loved you. Who loves like that all the time? Do we even love our family members like that all the time? Any, any wife want to uh, vouch for their husband loving like this all the time? Much less our enemies. And remember, Jews and Samaritans hated one another. So the example that Jesus chooses to use is of a guy who perfectly loves an enemy who's bleeding out and needs our help. Sadly, friends, we are not the good Samaritan in the parable of the good Samaritan. If you read yourself into the parable of the Good Samaritan as the Good Samaritan, I suggest that you sit down with the pastor and look at a different hermeneutic. We are not the Good Samaritan. We are either the Levite and the priest who see a bleeding victim that needs help and goes, oh, and walks by on the other side of the road, or we're the lawyer who who challenges Jesus with the question, who is my neighbor, to define some people as non-neighbors so that we can shirk ourselves a responsibility from loving those that we don't want to love, for whom it's inconvenient for us to love. We are one of those two individuals. So applied to the topic of abortion this morning, friends, the parable of the Good Samaritan is bad news for everyone. Because whether you've had an abortion or not, no one in your church or anywhere on the planet loves their unborn neighbor, or any neighbor for that matter, the way that the the law of God demands. The best pro-life advocate you know fails this standard, fails this test. Mother Teresa fails this test. The local pregnancy resource center director fails this test. I fail this test, and you fail this test. In short, we are not righteous. And we need an alien righteousness, don't we? Because we cannot love the way that the law of God commands. And friends, this is important because I'm not here to pass blame this morning. I'm not here to blame abortion on the church. I'm here as someone who has also regularly failed to love my neighbor. And if my wife was here, she would vouch for that. 
But the good news, friends, is that Christ is the greater good Samaritan. He's the true good Samaritan in the parable of the good Samaritan. Why? Because no human being we know loves as perfectly as the good Samaritan does in that parable. Christ has loved us perfectly. 1 John 4.10 says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So how do we respond to this perfect love of God for us and for our neighbors? Well, we respond by loving others. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. But don't misunderstand me here. What I'm not saying is that you just need to muster up more perfect love. I'm not saying now that you understand that God has loved you, just do what 1 John says, that he's loved you. So love others. Come on, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Muster up a more perfect love. Because even Christians filled with the Holy Spirit still have a sin nature, don't we? We cannot still perfectly love others simply because we've given our lives over to Christ. We are still going to fail. But our motivation to love our unborn neighbors and any neighbors is not to earn God's love. We do it because we already have God's love. And there's a promise in Scripture that if we step out and simply love others the way that God commands, God is going to meet us in that process. Here's the promise. 1 John 4.12 says that if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That's good news. Do you know what that means? That means that if you respond to the love of God, because he first loved us and so we love others. If you just do that and you step out in obedience to love neighbors, and in our context, the unborn neighbors in our midst, then it says that God is going to abide in you and his love will become perfected through you. So God is actually going to perfect the love that we show towards neighbors. So we don't have to do it all by ourselves. We don't have to manufacture this perfect love. It's going to be perfected in and through us by the work of the Holy Spirit. So what does this mean for all of us? How do we bring love and truth, grace and truth to the issue of abortion? I'm going to suggest that we respond in obedience by doing the very title of this sermon, which is loving our unborn neighbor. And we're going to talk about what that looks like. But this is important, friends, because just like the lawyer in the parable of the Good Samaritan wanted to what? Define some people as neighbors and some people as non-neighbors. The unborn children in our midst, in our country today, friends, are almost exclusively defined as a non-neighbor, a non-person, a non-human, something that is in our way that we are going to eliminate so that we can pursue the type of life that we want. And friends, society has a bloody, bloody history of defining some people out of existence, calling them non-neighbors and non-persons in order to justify their mistreatment and their slaughter and their murder. And we need look no further than the Holocaust or slavery in our own country. 
How were those things justified? A group of people who said, those people over there are not neighbors. They're not persons. Jews and blacks are not persons. And therefore, if I can convince a society that that's true, it becomes very easy for the society to accept the mistreatment and extermination of those people because, oh, they're not persons. This is not a new idea. This is not a new worldview. This has been done over and over again in our world. And friends, the dehumanization of the unborn has led to over 60 million dead babies since 1973 when abortion was legalized in Roe versus Wade. That is not to denigrate the Holocaust or slavery. Those are black stains on the history of the world, aren't they? Conservative estimates are that at least 6 million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust. Over 60 million babies have been ripped limb from limb in the United States of America alone in the last 46 years, and it's become legal. Now, I want to address the reality that some of you in this room probably don't think of the unborn as a neighbor. Maybe you've never even thought about applying the term neighbor that's found in Scripture to the unborn. Maybe you don't think of them as full persons. Or maybe you do, but you've never known how to defend that belief apart from citing Bible verses, which of course is not going to have any sway with a pro-choice atheist who doesn't believe in the authority of scripture in the first place. So let's examine who the unborn is and see if they qualify as a person, as a neighbor. And if they do, how can we defend that position? How can we bring truth and love to the issue of abortion as followers of Jesus who are called to love God and love our neighbor as ourself? So to answer the question, is the unborn a neighbor? Are they one of us? There's only one question that we have to ask and answer to determine if they qualify as a person and as a neighbor. And to illustrate what that one question is, I'm going to ask you to expand your imagination with me a little bit. Hopefully you've had enough donuts and coffee to, to, to run this thought experiment through with me. Okay, I want you to imagine that you're sitting or standing at your kitchen sink cleaning dishes one evening. Okay? Now, for whatever reason, God hasn't been kind enough to bless you with a dishwasher in Orange County. So as you're standing there cleaning your dishes by hand, God forbid, your three-year-old toddler walks up behind you. Now your back is turned and you hear your toddler say, mommy or daddy, can I kill this? Now some of you dads are looking at me like you've heard that question every week. Now, if you're going to, before you turn around, right, you're going to ask a very important question in response to the question, mommy or daddy, can I kill this? And what would that question be? What is it exactly? Kill what? What is it? Because if you turned around and he was holding a cockroach, dad might say, son, get the hammer. Don't tell mom. But if he was holding the neighbor kitty, you might have a very different response unless you're a vindictive cat hater, in which case there's no judgment here. But if he was holding his little brother by the throat, you need counseling. So you couldn't answer the question, can I kill this until you answered the question, what is it? as it pertains to the issue of abortion, friends, we can't answer the question, can we kill the unborn, whatever the unborn is, until we answer the question, what is the unborn? Greg Kokel, a Christian apologist and author, says that if the unborn are not human, then no justification for abortion is necessary. If they're not one of us, nobody cares. Have as many abortions as you'd like. But then he says, however, if the unborn are human, no justification for abortion is adequate. 
No justification offered in defense of that abortion is adequate if the thing being killed is a human being who shares our common human nature. So the entire abortion debate turns on this question, what is the unborn? Additionally, if the unborn is human, friends, then the unborn is a neighbor. Because scripture is very clear that every human being is our neighbor. That's why Christ's commandment to love neighbors is so intense because it includes enemies. It includes every human being. So let's answer this question, what is the unborn this morning? Because this is the fundamental question. Any conversation on the issue of abortion will be entirely fruitless and ineffective if we don't start with this question. So I'm going to answer the question, what is the unborn this morning, in three ways. I'm going to answer it scientifically, I'm going to answer it theologically, and I'm going to answer it philosophically. And I think this is actually going to be very accessible and repeatable content for you. We start talking about science and philosophy. I know that sounds super intellectual. It's going to actually be very simple. And I think you'll be able to track and use this in your lives to love your unborn neighbors and be a voice for the unborn. So to answer this question, what is the unborn? Let's firstly look at science because I'm not making a political argument. I'm not really even necessarily making a religious argument as to why abortion is wrong. Now we're going to look at the theological case for the value of the unborn child. But we just first need to look at science because science tells us who we are. Science gives us objective facts about the human species. So this is what the science of embryology teaches us, right? The biology of the embryo, embryology. And there's entire textbooks on embryology. And this language is going to be found in any embryology textbook on any college campus. These are not terms I've invented to make my position sound more persuasive or winsome. This will be found in any university embryology textbook. This is what the science of embryology teaches us, and it answers the question, what is the unborn? From the earliest stages of development, that means conception. From the moment of conception, the unborn child is a distinct, living, and whole human being. Now, what do those terms mean? Well, distinct means separate. The distinct means that it's actually a different human being. Now, you've all heard the mantra, my body, my choice. Interesting, the mantra that you'll never hear is, two bodies, my choice, or our bodies, my choice. So the mantra assumes that there's only one body involved. Is that true? Well, according to science, not my personal opinion, the unborn child is a distinct human being. That means separate. The unborn child has its own unique DNA code. It could have a different blood type than the mother. And of course, if the unborn baby is a boy and babies are parts of their mother's bodies, then I guess pregnant women have male genitalia. But nobody recognizes that as making sense because the baby is not part of the mother's body, is it? It's distinct. It's a distinct human being. It's living because it's directing its own internal growth from within and dead things don't grow. And it meets all the requirements of a living thing. Now, I have a 16-month-old, so I watched my wife be pregnant. Here's something that never happened. My wife never woke up in the middle of the night saying, oh my gosh, babe, I forgot to tell our baby to grow. Hold on. Come on, baby, grow, grow, grow. That never happened. Why did that never happen? Because pregnant women don't will their unborn children to grow. They develop themselves from within. This is why pregnant women can actually go to sleep at night. Now, some of you probably slept a lot 
not as well as others, but women can be unconscious and be sleeping and be pregnant and their unborn children are developing themselves. So the unborn child is living. The unborn child is whole, and I don't mean that, they have every, that they're fully developed. That's not what whole means. When we say the unborn child is whole, we mean that the unborn child has everything they need to realize their full development and growth as one of us. So I'm 27. I'm not 30. Do I have everything I need in my biologically coordinated human system to realize my development as a 30-year-old? Yes. Do the junior hires have everything they need in their human system to realize their development as a 20-year-old? Yes. Are they 20 yet? No. So the unborn child, just like all of us, have everything we need at our current level of development to realize our development at a later stage of development. That's what whole means. So the unborn child is a distinct living and whole human being. So you didn't come from an embryo and then become something else. You once were an embryo. That's where we all began, at the moment of conception in our mother's wombs. So the unborn is a human being, plain and simple. The science of embryology answers this question. So what is the unborn? According to the science of embryology, they're a distinct, living, and whole human being who share our common human nature. Now let's answer this question theologically. To answer this question from scripture and to look at who the unborn is, I'm going to go to the beginning of the human story. In Genesis 1.26, it says, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So according to scripture, all human beings are what? Created in the image of God. And what did we just learn from the science of embryology? The unborn is a human being. So if all human beings are created in the image of God and the unborn is a human being objectively, then the unborn is a image bearer of God. The unborn child is created in the image of God. This is what follows logically. And so because all human beings are created in the image of God, scripture has some very intense things to say about the mistreatment of image bearers. Jeremiah 22.3 says, Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. So scripture strictly forbids the shedding of innocent blood. Why? Because those whose blood is being shed are image bearers. They're created in the image of God and therefore have intrinsic value. They're not just a cow. They're not just animals. They're not just potential people. They are human beings created in the image of God. So the prohibitions against the shedding of innocent blood in scripture would apply equally to the unborn because the unborn is a human being. And scripture says all human beings are created in the image of God. Therefore, the unborn child is created in the image of God. So if we're going to answer the question, what is the unborn? We answer it scientifically. It's a human being. Just pull up in any embryology textbook on any college campus and you will read the same teaching. Secondly, theologically, we know that all human beings are created in the image of God. So the unborn is an image bearer. Thirdly, we're going to answer this question philosophically. 
Now, this might sound complicated. This might sound super intellectual. This is actually very simple. Philosophy deals with questions of value because science can't tell us how to treat one another, can it? You're never going to be in a biology classroom and they're, they're never going to say, well, based off of this human DNA, don't steal because biology just gives us, human, gives us facts about who we are as members of the race homo sapiens, human beings, right? So we turn to philosophy to deal with questions of value. Now, the reason this is important, friends, is because many people okay, acknowledge the humanity of the unborn but still argue for the permissibility of abortion. Many people that you will talk to will agree with you when you say, scientifically, the unborn is a human being because it has human parents and human DNA. Some of them will even agree with you that human beings are created in the image of God. But they're going to deny that the unborn child has a right to life. How are they going to do that? They're going to separate the term human being from human person. They're going to separate the term human from person. Friends, let me suggest that every time that has been done historically, horrendous, disgusting consequences have followed. I already talked to you about this a little, right? If you can say, okay, those people are humans, right? Okay, Jews and blacks are humans, but they're not persons. I mean, come on. Therefore, Holocaust and slavery. This has been done over and over and over again. Now, as Christians and pro-life individuals, we would maintain, what, that those are the same things, that there's no difference between a human and a person. If you're a human, you're a person. They're basically synonymous terms, right? That's what we would say. But when you can convince a society that they're actually different and that there are some people who, who are humans but not persons, yeah, it becomes very easy to justify the mistreatment and slaughter of those who you have convinced a society are deserving of the term person, and this is what is being done on the issue of abortion. So we have to make a human equality argument from philosophy, from questions of value, right? That make the case that all human beings are human persons and have equal value as such. So here is the human equality philosophical argument for the equal value of the unborn to you and I. And notice... This argument is not going to cite Bible verses to make my case, but I'm going to be affirming biblical truth nonetheless. So here is the philosophical argument for the value of the unborn. There is no value giving difference, or you could say meaningful difference. There's no meaningful difference between the embryonic human being that you once were and the adult that you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Here's another way to put it. There's no meaningful difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that makes it okay to kill you, the embryo. Does that make sense? Now, are there differences between embryos and teenagers? Are there differences between embryos and grandpas? Yes. But the issue is that none of those differences are morally relevant in determining human value. None of those differences are relevant in determining your right to life and your right to not be killed by someone else. So let's look at what some of those differences are. The differences between embryos in their mother's wombs and you and I. And the reason why pointing out these differences is important, by the way, is because these are the primary differences that will be used by supporters of abortion to justify abortion. They're going to point to the differences between unborn humans and born humans and say, therefore, because the unborn differs in these ways, 
we can kill them through abortion on demand. So to remember what those four differences are, we're going to use an acronym, SLED, S-L-E-D. By the way, the card that you received in your pamphlet as you walked in this morning has that acronym on it with the summary of everything I'm about to say so that you can commit this to memory and engage the culture of death with arguments for human equality that acknowledge the value of all human beings. So the first difference is size. Yes, it's true, the unborn child is what? Smaller than the newborn child. Just like newborn children are smaller than toddlers and toddlers are smaller than teenagers. Just like me at six foot three, and maybe the tallest person in the room, maybe the second, I'm larger than most of you. Is it okay for me to mistreat or kill the rest of you who are shorter than me? How do the junior hires feel about that? Of course not. Why? Because human value is not based or grounded in size, is it? But what do people who support abortion say? The unborn? You mean that thing you can barely see at two weeks? How does that thing have value? Dehumanizing human beings based off of their size and using their smaller size to justify their killing. But if we reject size as a justification to kill born people, we have to equally reject that justification and difference to kill unborn people if those unborn people are in fact human beings? And we've already answered that question from science. L stands for level of development. Yes, it's true. The unborn child is less developed than the newborn child, just like the newborn child is less developed than the toddler, and the toddler is less developed than the teenager. Just like your kids are less developed than you, and your parents are more developed than you. But our level of development has nothing to do with our human value. Does that, does that mean, therefore, that it's, it's more wrong to kill grandpa, but it's more okay to kill grandkid? Because you know grandkids are less developed than grandparents. No, of course not, because human value isn't found in your level of development. But what do people who support abortion say? The unborn child can't feel pain. The unborn child isn't conscious. The unborn child isn't viable. The unborn child can't survive outside the womb. The unborn child doesn't have brain waves that are detectable. Now, those are all differences that come along with what? A level of development. So they justify killing unborn babies because they're less developed, but they reject killing infants and toddlers because they're less developed. So if we reject killing born people because of their level of development, we have to equally reject killing unborn people based off of their level of development. Because what? They're human beings. Size, level of development, environment. Environment just means location, okay? where you find yourself. Yes, it's true, the unborn child is located in a very different environment, aren't they? The womb. By the way, it's where the baby's supposed to be. By the way, none of you would be here this morning listening to me if you didn't come from a womb. So that's where we all began. And friends, the sad news is that the womb is one of the most unsafe places to be in the United States of America a country that was founded on the right to life first. But if your location is relevant to your human value, then do human beings lose their value every time they change locations? In fact, the distance I just traveled is a significantly further distance than the unborn child travels through the birth canal during childbirth. 
six inches from the womb to the world, from the womb to the doctor's waiting hands. And our country says, as long as that baby is six inches away in the womb, we can dismember their limbs. But six inches later, it's a human person with rights. Justifying murder of human beings based off of location. But where one is has no bearing on who one is. Size, level of development, environment or location, and dependency, degree of dependency. Degree of dependency means what? How dependent you are on someone or something else for your life. Is the unborn child dependent on the mother? Yes. And in the first trimester, the first three months, and the early second trimester, the unborn child cannot survive apart from the mother, can they? They require their connection to their mother to live. But if your dependency on someone or something else dictates your value as a human being, then we run into more moral problems, don't we? Born people, therefore, who are dependent on insulin, heart pacemakers, kidney machines, and life support would logically also not be persons and we can kill them as such because they're dependent on something without which they cannot continue to live. Uh-oh, we don't like that reasoning, do we? So people who support abortion accept your dependency on someone or something else to justify killing you if you're in the womb, but they don't accept dependency as a relevant justification to justify killing born people. But if the unborn is a human being, which science has already says it is, then we need to equally reject dependency for killing unborn people as we do for it killing born people. Size, level of development, environment or location, and dependency. These are the four differences between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, and none of them are morally relevant to your right to life, are they? Now notice, I've just made a human equality argument based off of philosophy. Did I cite Bible verses to make my case? Did I say, you need to oppose abortion because God says don't murder and abortion is murder? Now, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. But is your pro-choice atheist family member, friend, or coworker going to be persuaded by a biblical argument as to why abortion is wrong? No, they're not. Because if they reject Jesus as king, if they reject the scriptures being authoritative, and your only argument as to why abortion is wrong is based on scripture, why should they accept that argument? So we can make a human equality philosophical argument that argues for the value of all human beings, whether unborn or born, without citing Bible verses, but we're affirming biblical truth nonetheless. So if we're going to answer the question, what is the unborn? Remember, which is the central question. We can answer it scientifically. The embryology tells us it's a human being from the moment of conception. We can answer it theologically because all human beings are created in the image of God and the unborn is a human being. So therefore the unborn child is created in the image of God. So commands against the shedding of innocent blood in scripture would apply equally to the unborn. And lastly, we can answer it philosophically by pointing out that there's no meaningful difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that makes it okay to kill you, the embryo. And the only differences are these, and all born people differ in these differences. And so if we reject these differences to kill born people, we have to equally reject those differences for killing unborn people. 
This is how we answer the question, what is the unborn? This is how you're equipped to be a voice for the unborn, to love your unborn neighbor and their mothers and fathers and be defenders of life for the bleeding victims on the side of the road who are being aborted at a million a year in the United States of America. This is how you can be an ambassador for the unborn children in our midst, a good Samaritan to the bleeding victims of abortion. But practically, friends, how can we love our unborn neighbors? How can we engage beyond the tools of thought we need to be defenders of life? Well, I have a few points here that I think will be helpful as you as a church body and you as individuals move forward in being a voice for life in a country that is, by the way, being torn apart more than any other time in the last 46 years on this issue. I don't have time to go into the recent political disagreements and legislation, but you're probably aware they are many and they are ripping our country apart, just like abortion rips the limbs off of unborn babies. So here are some things we can do practically to lovingly engage. Firstly, let us acknowledge together that the unborn is indeed our neighbor. Now, this is difficult, right? Because we don't often see our unborn neighbor, do we? And those who support abortion work overtime to make sure that nobody sees what abortion does to that unborn baby. And when abortion is shown, when in, rather when injustice is hidden, injustice is tolerated. But when injustice is shown, injustice is rejected. Because abortion shows the injustice of what happens to the baby in the womb. And sadly, just like the Levite and the priest in the parable of the Good Samaritan saw a bleeding victim, but chose to not see them, to pretend like they didn't see the bleeding victim and walked by on the other side of the road, many of us today in the church refuse to see what happens to our bleeding, unborn neighbors. And so we're going to give you an opportunity this morning that is entirely optional to see what abortion does to image bearers of God who just happen to be smaller, less developed, located elsewhere, and more dependent than you and I. This is a God's eye perspective of what happens to every baby 3,000 times a day and over a million times a year. This is what happens to every baby. Now, we want to let you know that you have the complete freedom and option to not view this video. It's about 55 seconds, okay? It's very short. But it is graphic and it is disturbing. Why is it graphic and disturbing? Because abortion is graphic and disturbing, friends. This is not pro-life propaganda. This is not doctored images that we've created in order to elicit an emotional response. This is simply abortion. There's instrumental music that's been dubbed over the video so that if you choose to avert your gaze close your eyes, or even step out of the room, you're not even going to hear anything that you don't want to hear. So you have the complete freedom to opt out of this presentation, but we are going to show you what abortion does to little babies created in the image of God. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and play this brief video clip. Friends, that is our neighbor. That's our bleeding victim. And sadly, for years, many of us have been the Levite and the priest, haven't we? We were aware that it was happening, but we pretended like we didn't see them. 
and behind sterile white clinic doors. Millions of arms were being torn off of human beings every year, and we called it reproductive health care. We called it a woman's choice. Well, friends, that's reproductive health care. That's choice. The dehumanization of an entire class of human beings in order to justify their mass mistreatment and slaughter. Now, friends, we don't show you that imagery to shame you or to guilt you, okay? We show it to bring clarity to the question, who is the unborn? We use it to answer the question, is the unborn our neighbor? So if you've had a personal experience with abortion, or you've been complicit in an abortion, we don't show this to shame you. In fact, I believe that Jesus would tell you that he is just as eager to forgive the sin of abortion as any other sin. That's the gospel. The gospel is that sinners, regardless of the degree of their sin, can find forgiveness and healing when they repent. And I think the story of King David is so applicable to this scenario. There was a bit of a speed bump in King David's story, wasn't there? A man that God called, a man after his own heart, made a big mistake one time, didn't he? Rather than being on the front lines of the battle that his army was fighting, he was hanging out on his roof, screwing around while others fought his battles. And he saw a woman named Bathsheba bathing. He decided that he wanted her, brought her into his room. They had sexual intercourse and a baby was conceived from that union. Whoa! Now, in order to cover up and hide his sexual sin, David arranged the death of an innocent person, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, so that nobody found out what he did. Friends, abortion arranges the death of an innocent person. And whether it was done to cover up sexual sin or not, it ends in a dead, innocent human being. But when the prophet Nathan confronted David regarding his sin, David immediately repented in dust and ashes and made an acceptable sacrifice to God of repentance. And you need only read Psalm 51 to read the heart of David in response to his sin and towards God after committing adultery and then murdering the husband of the woman he committed adultery with. And God forgave and renewed David. And David went on to say regarding his son that died from his union with Bathsheba, he said, my son will not return to me, but I will go to him. Do you know what that means, friends? That means that if you've had an abortion and you repent and ask for Christ's forgiveness through his blood shed on the cross on your behalf, you're going to see your baby in heaven again one day. And he or she is seated on Christ's lap in glory. That is the hope and healing and forgiveness available in Jesus. So if this is part of your story and you need help and you need counseling and you haven't fully come to terms with what you've done, there are people in this church who would love to walk through a journey of healing with you. I personally work with multiple pregnancy resource centers in Orange County who are equipped to do counseling for post-abortive men and women. 
So if you need that, come see me or Pastor Jared after the service. But we do have to show what abortion is to answer the question, what is the unborn? Are they a person? Are they a neighbor? So let us acknowledge together that that unborn baby is our neighbor. Secondly, we need to repent for not being a good neighbor, all of us. We have all neglected to love our unborn neighbor and their mothers and fathers, all of us. Whether you've had an abortion, paid for it, pressured it, ignored it, or whether you've treated abortion like a non-issue. All of us have to repent for not being a good neighbor to the unborn children in our midst who are literally having their arms vacuumed or torn off through abortion. And there's a promise in scripture when we repent, isn't there? There's many, but I want to highlight 2 Chronicles 7.14. It says... If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Friend, does our land need some healing? (laughs) That's the promise of repentance from God. So we all need to repent for not being good neighbors. Thirdly, we need to respond with words and with deeds. To respond with words, you actually need to commit to learn how to communicate the pro-life position in love. Because you're not going to remember every point I made this morning, are you? Two weeks from now, you're going to be in a conversation on abortion and being like, oh, I wish I had stuff here because I do this full time. You don't. That's okay, by the way, but it means it's going to take some time to learn how to be a gracious and persuasive voice for those who don't have one. So if you fill out the contact tear-off portion of the card you were given, fill it out and drop it in the basket on your way out. I'll add you to my newsletter and our ministry's newsletter, and you'll receive free resources in written and video form to defend your pro-life beliefs, to be a gracious and persuasive voice for those who don't have one. So fill that out and get engaged. Learn and equip yourself. This is what 1 Peter 3.15 tells us to do, by the way. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So just as we need to be prepared to make a defense for the gospel, we also need to be prepared to give a defense as to how the gospel informs how we see different issues, like the issue of abortion. So equip yourself. Respond with words in that way. Secondly, we need to respond with deeds. And here are four simple ways that you as a church and we as individuals, individual pro-life Christians, can respond with deeds. The first is create a culture of acceptance and not shame. May it be true of this church that when a woman is facing an unplanned pregnancy, her first thought is not, I need to make an appointment at Planned Parenthood. But her first thought is, I need to go tell my pastor. I need to go tell my community group. That her first thought would be, I know my church will accept me with love. That doesn't mean approval of every action, does it? It simply means acceptance of you as an image bearer of God. And if we're called to love our neighbors, we're called to love all neighbors. 
So may this be a church that creates a culture of acceptance and not shame. Could we put the slides up, by the way? Secondly, offer to pay the bills, if necessary, to help women in unplanned pregnancies. May it be true of this church that when a woman is facing an unplanned pregnancy, there would be so many people surrounding her saying, if you can't pay your rent, if you can't pay for the childbirthing fees, if you can't pay for the diapers and formula, we're going to pay for it all for you. Now, obviously, financial struggles are not a justification for killing human beings, are they? Of course not. But may it be true that this church would surround those type of women and say, this is a baby. This is a human being created in the image of God. What do you, what do you need to help you choose life? That we would make sacrificial steps just like the good Samaritan did in loving the bleeding victim and those who needed his help. Thirdly, advertise this church's willingness to adopt and raise any child. What if a woman facing an unplanned pregnancy who wanted to kill that baby because she said, I can't do this, had four family members approach her and say, we will adopt your baby right now. Just carry your baby to term and we will literally adopt and raise your child. What if that was the positioning of the hearts of Christians in Orange County? Now, again, abortion is wrong regardless of one's willingness or unwillingness to adopt a baby. That's still a valuable human being who should be saved. But what if that was the positioning and compassionate hearts of Christians here in our county? So make that kind of commitment as a church and as individuals to rise up and say, if the need presents itself... We will do this. We will advertise our church's willingness to adopt and raise any child. Send the word out. Let people know. These are human beings. These are our neighbors and they need our help. Lastly, support pro-life organizations and your local pregnancy resource center. Friends, there are more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. That's because killing babies is very profitable while saving them is very costly. So costly that large numbers of people who say they oppose abortion are not lifting a finger to stop it. And those that do lift a finger do just enough to salve the conscience, but not enough to stop the killing. So we need to be supporting the individuals and organizations that are the ones working full-time to save babies. Because there are a heck of a lot more people working full-time and making more money doing so to dismember human babies in the womb. So consider as a church and as individuals supporting a local pregnancy care clinic or local pro-life organization. If this type of equipping and training and discipleship that I've been discussing was valuable and helpful to you, consider supporting me to do this full-time. I speak full-time in Protestant and Catholic high schools and colleges, churches, conferences, pregnancy care clinic banquets, and secular university campuses in order to equip and train pro-life individuals to be a voice for the unborn and gently ask pro-choice individuals to reconsider their views by examining evidence they haven't seen or heard before. So if that's valuable to you, then we can get in touch through the contact card you can fill out and discuss how you would want to help me help the unborn. So respond with words and with deeds. Repent for not being good neighbors and acknowledge that the unborn is indeed our neighbor. So this is the question I want to leave us with this morning, friends. And I believe it's a question that is assumed 
in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And that question is, what type of people are we going to be? Remember, Jesus switches the question from who is my neighbor to am I a good neighbor? What type of people are we going to be? Are we going to be like the Levite and the priest, religious people who know the law of God, who can recite the law of God into the face of Jesus, but then say, I don't want to love that person. Can I, can I define certain people as non-neighbors? Because I really don't like that guy. Are we going to walk by bleeding unborn babies who need our help while saying we oppose abortion? Or are we going to be like the good Samaritan who saw a bleeding victim and graciously and lavishly and sacrificially loved that human image bearer of God? So I want to read you the final verses from the parable of the good Samaritan. And instead of picturing the bleeding victim who got mugged and beaten up on the road, I want you to replace that individual with the bleeding unborn neighbor that you just saw. Picture that bleeding victim instead. And hear the final words from the parable of the good Samaritan. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the bleeding victim? He said to Jesus, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Pray with me, friends. Father, thank you that you are the author and perfecter of our faith, but you're also the author of life. Thank you that you create every human being in their mother's wombs, that you literally knit together life and breathe life into those that you create. And you don't make mistakes. We are not here by mistake. You are a sovereign, all-knowing, all-loving God who loves and knows the life that he creates in the womb, in the dark of the womb, which is currently the most dangerous place to be in the United States of America. So give us your grace and give us your spirit to engage with courage, with grace, and with compassion to love our unborn neighbors and their mothers and fathers. We need your help to do this and we want to respond appropriately to the love that you have already poured out for us. Give us that courage, give us that grace, and help us to remember this time so that we can step out, walk out, and courageously and lovingly engage with those in our world who are currently celebrating the killing of unborn babies. We know this breaks your heart and break our heart as well, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.